Hey, good morning, everyone. The reading this morning will come from the book of Nahum, chapter 2 and 3. I'll start with chapter 2, verse 1. The scatterer has come, up, uh, has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Chapter 2, verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. Chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear. Hosts of the slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble, they stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and deadly and full of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirt over your face, and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle, and all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile? with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall. Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed into pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, were, honored men lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the, like the grasshoppers. You increase your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts, sitting on the fences in, a, in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep. O king of Assyria, your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your, wounds, your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. How you doing? I mean, the sun's out, right? That's a start compared to the way it's been for, it's about a rainy week, wasn't it? Rainy week. 
I want to give you a little update on our K-pop giving, J-pop, hashtag pop, right? Um, for those of you who weren't here uh, two weeks ago, we presented you with three, uh, three needs and encouraged you to give, and your response was overwhelming. So we, we kind of talked through that last week, and I affirmed your generosity, but the generosity kept flowing, so I just I want to update you, but also let you know that we have closed down these giving categories. The needs have been met above and beyond. So the first was for Nadia and her family as they settle into life here, having fled the chaos that is Ukraine. Uh, the original need that had been expressed to us was they just they needed 600 more dollars to be able to settle into their housing comfortably. And uh, so we threw that out there as a goal, and that's how you guys responded. So initially, I think we were going to disperse. Uh, it was 12 and then 18, but the giving just kept coming. So up to three for Nadia. We were able to up it to three for Parakaleo, just an invaluable ministry that serves and cares for women in ministry in Japan. We believe deeply in uh, Utako and that ministry. And then for Vincent Brenna Hogue, who will be moving over here later this summer, whenever the whenever Japan gives them clearance to, to enter. And we were able to set, a, set aside a very generous amount that will cover their airfare, whatever they've got to do for ROM, and just early getting settled in. So I just, one more time, wanted to affirm in you the beautiful gospel-shaped generosity that demonstrates that the gospel has reshaped the way that you view your finances. And what I love is this giving happened in the midst of just a continual and aggressive decline in our own economy. All the memes about super expensive gas on base yesterday, like we're over five bucks now, right? And so while the rest of our culture is freaking out and trying to hold close and gather in, you guys still have an open hand and you give what God has given you for the good of the good and flourishing of other people. And it's beautiful and should be commended. So I want to commend that in you. It makes me proud to be one of your pastors. Thank you. Let's pray and we will get right down to work in Nahum. Father, we want to pause a moment and recognize we're your kids. We're, as kids, we're needy. Um, and so we just want to stop and let our hearts and our bodies be still and be quiet for a moment and think about that need and remember that you, you alone have what we need most. And we want to acknowledge a week where we've probably tried to satisfy those needs in a bunch of different ways, pursuing a bunch of different substitutes instead of pursuing you, Father, instead of pursuing you, Jesus, and instead of pursuing you, Spirit. And so we, we repent of that and we pray that you would give our souls rest as we um, simply recognize the need. We don't come here this morning to give you something so much as we come here to get. We need your presence and we need your grace. And we pray that we would receive and experience your presence together as a family and receive that grace um, for whatever need that we face, whatever valley we happen to be in this morning. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to wrap up Nahum this week. Started last week, just a quick two-week mini-series in the third shortest book of the Old Testament. You remember we learned last week the general theme of Nahum is woe to the bloody city. 
And our first big idea was a word of comfort for those who live in the shadows of the bloody city. And you remember, uh, if you could throw that first idea up there, Grant, there it is. When haunted by shadows cast from the bloody city. We look to God's character because God's character is a source of comfort for you in the shadows. And that's the main purpose of Nahum. Nahum is writing to an entire people who find themselves in the shadows and he points them to God's character as the source of their comfort. There's another side to Nahum. It's not just a word of comfort. It's a word of confrontation. And that's what we'll see this morning. Just as it's a word of comfort, here it is. When home is your comfortable street address in the bloody city, you're not taking comfort in God's character. You need to take concern in God's character. Now, let's just establish a few baselines, especially if you're visiting or you weren't here last week, just so that we're all on the same page. Let's talk about bloody city, street address, and shadows, just so we're all tracking, okay? Bloody city was the nickname given to Nineveh by Nahum. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. This book was probably written or the message given shortly before 612 when Nineveh would fall, so it preceded the fall. The bloody city was a nickname that was earned for over a century and a half of injustices suffered by people who lived in the shadows of Nineveh. Scores of injustices that we explored last week, okay? So to be in the shadows of the bloody city uh, is to be a person who is threatened by the bloody city's existence, to have been dehumanized or degraded, trafficked, um, kidnapped, taken as a slave, to have all of your resources taken by the bloody city and exported from your own town into the bloody city, Nineveh, to perpetuate a way of life, a standard of living, a level of comfort that had come to be expected in that city. And it was only possible at the expense of other people outside of the city, right? So anybody who'd been disregarded, marginalized, dehumanized, rejected, trafficked, plundered, threatened, living in fear, okay, the shadows... Nahum gives a word of comfort to those in the shadows. And we'll we'll see that again this morning. Now the street address. There's a word of confrontation for all those who live comfortably in, in the culture and the way of life that was Nineveh, right? The, where Now, it's possible to have a street address in Nineveh and not be comforted by her and not to assimilate into the culture and to be countercultural. But this is a real word of warning to anyone who had a comfortable street address and was aligned with the culture and fit right in with the culture of the bloody city. Okay, word of warning, word of confrontation. Now, the bloody city. Nahum is directed toward a particular city, Nineveh, at a particular point in time, about 615 BC. However, as we learned last week, Nineveh serves as a certain um, archetype for us 
uh, for all cities of all time. In fact, if I had a globe up here, um, some of you grew up with a spinning globe in your house, right? Sometimes you just spin it and randomly put your finger places and yeah, okay, so the globe. If we had a globe up here, um, Nineveh serves as a certain type of archetype. So what we could do is we could take the globe and give the entire globe a title, Bloody City, right? The globe would have that title, the, the world. And we know this because God created the world beautiful and right, and he created us to know him and to love him. He created us to live for his fame and the flourishing of other people. If we had remained within that creative intent, there never would have been a bloody city in the world. Not one. But in our rebellion, we flip God's creative purpose, and rather living for his fame, we live for our own. And rather than living for the flourishing of other people, uh, we live for our own in our, in our rebel hearts. And so, in order to live for our own fame and our own flourishing, we have to use other people uh, so that we can make gains. And the shadows are created around the bloody cities. And so this is systemic. Another way to imagine this would be as we spin the globe, anywhere my finger lands could appropriately be labeled, There's, there is another bloody city, right? There's a bloody city. Another way to imagine is that inside of your globe, there's a network of veins. Blood is coursing through these veins. Nineveh had a certain kind of blood, right? The bloody city had its own blood type. Just to be creative, bloody city, so we'll call it BC. BC positive, how's that, okay? BC positive is the blood type. What we can't see behind the globe is that the veins that run through the bloody city run through, run through all of humanity, all mankind, every city. So the same blood that courses injustices throughout the streets of Nineveh that same blood, BC positive, courses injustice through the streets of every city that has ever populated the globe, right? The bloody city. And so you either live in the shadows of the bloody city, or you have a comfortable street address in one. Sometimes both, there's a little tension there, especially for followers of Jesus. Um, we all live in a bloody city, but if you are a follower of Jesus whose life is increasingly shaped by your allegiance to Jesus as your king, and his values, your allegiance to his values, shaped by the gospel, you will increasingly uh, be at odds with the cultural values around you. So while you may have a street address in the bloody city, you're at the same time living in its shadows. Even if you're not oppressed or experiencing injustice, injustices, uh, it's just your ethical system and your you're going to be so, so different from the ethics and the values of the city around you. It's like simultaneously you'll be living in the bloody city, but in the shadows as well, okay? So that's where we're at. Home, when home is your comfortable street address in the bloody city, take concern in God's character. We're going to cover two chapters briefly this morning. Uh, I need to shrink things down to like single words and short sentences and vivid pictures to help me remember. Um, actually, somebody came up to me after the service and they're like, man, I was drawing my notes as you were talking and I just called, like, the bloody city, I was just thinking Gotham. And so his entire sermon notes went with a Batman theme. So if that works for you, go for it. Gotham City, okay? Because we learned last week, this was in the Bible, God is the Avenger of the Avengers. Batman's not an Avenger, though, right? I don't even know. Yeah, DC Comics. Okay. Do what you got to do to remember. Here's how I remember chapter two. I call it Assyrian Scream. I'm going to show you why, okay? Scream. 
And then for chapter three, uh, Assyrian dream. So scream and dream. Okay, that's chapter two, chapter three of Nahum. Let me show you Assyrian scream. And why, listen, if, if, if home for you is a comfortable street address of the bloody city and you, you fit in, you fit in, you gotta be really concerned with God's character. Let me show you, chapter two, Nahum. One key word in all of chapter two that you need to know if you've got a comfortable street address in the bloody city, and that word is against. Look at the first line of verse one. The scatterer has come up, what? Against you. And the first line of verse 13, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. If you have a comfortable street address as your home in the bloody city, the first thing you need to know is that God is against and look at the way God introduces himself in verse 1 of chapter 2. It's very unusual. Normally, we think of God as the gatherer. Here, he's introduced as the scatterer. In other words, what sets a bloody city apart is um, if we're going to live for our own fame and our own flourishing, we've got to live a life marked by gathering in and keeping close. I need to gather in resources. I need to gather in power. I need to gather in... Uh, money. I need, to, I need to gather in and keep close for my flourishing at the expense of other people. If you're going to live a life of gathering, you have to know you're committed to a life of taking away from other people, which is counter to God's creative design for you. You're created to live for his fame and the flourishing. If you're going to live for the flourishing of, of other people, you live a life that's marked by giving away. And so God signals He's coming as a scatterer for those who, is, who have gathered in rebellion their entire lives. And he invites them to man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength, because it's going to take all your strength, and still you're going to be scattered. He also introduces himself in a unique way in verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares what? The Lord of hosts. Now, Nineveh was known for her strength, her army. And so this is God saying, I have an army too. And I'm coming in hot. I mean, I'm coming in heavy. This is a little Nahum shock and awe for you all, Nineveh. I'm coming in hard. Remember last week there was imagery in chapter one about the clouds being the dust that kick up off of God's feet as he comes in to execute justice. So maybe if it would help you, imagine a bloody city. Go Gotham if you need to. Um, and and there's, a, there's a big storm blowing in over the city. It's not there yet, but it's coming. Dark clouds, you've got lightning bolts shooting out of the clouds into the city. Those clouds are the dust of God's feet as he comes in justice towards the city of blood. He's coming. The storm moves towards the city of blood. It's inescapable. It's not going around. It's going through. And God has two purposes in the coming storm. And you really need to know this if home for you is a comfortable street address in the city of blood. Two more key words in chapter two. I already gave you against. Two more. Restoring and ruining. Look at verse two of chapter two. For the Lord is what? Restoring the majesty of Jacob. Jacob these were the people living in the shadows of the city of blood, right? So God is coming in the storm 
to execute justice. And part of that justice will be a restoration of those who live in the shadows of all cities of blood of all times. All the oppressed, all the powerless, all of those who have suffered injustice. So his people here is coming to restore the beauty, the majesty. Now this is really important. Look at this language. I want to show this to you. This is life in the shadows. Plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Those are fitting metaphors for life in the shadows. Plundered's a financial term. So you can be plundered financially, but there are other ways to be plundered. You can be plundered spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally, sexually. Your soul can be plundered. Your body can be plundered, taken by another, used to gratify or satisfy their desires, and then you're discarded. Plundered. The shadows are full of people who have been plundered, used up and discarded to perpetuate a certain standard of living come to be expected in the city of blood. Their branches are ruined. I've got this guava tree in my backyard. It drives me up a wall. I almost chopped it down last night while the kids were sleeping. But the thing is, kids wake up and they like their little guava, their guava tree. And the fruit's just now starting to block. You can, it's coming, right? So they know it's coming. And you should hear Owen say guava. It's really cute. <clears throat> it's taken over my backyard, though. The tree is beautiful, though, because it has, it, has, it has life. You can see the life, and you can taste it. It's coming. Fam, we need to be empathetic towards people in the shadows. Persons in the shadows have not only been plundered in one way or another, which, man, we, for those of us who have a comfortable street address, when people from the shadows speak out, we're like, well, that's just your anecdotal story. It's not really, right? We're very desensitized to the plunderings of other people. But they have a life characterized by a branch that has lost its ability to bear fruit and be beautiful and have life. It is dark in the shadows. But the beauty of God's restorative justice is he's coming in like a storm and he will not be stopped. And part of his justice is to restore those in the shadows. But that's not the only part, that's half. He's also coming to ruin those with a comfortable street address. He's coming to ruin those who are in part implicitly or explicitly responsible for those who are in the shadows or being in the shadows. Look at this, verse 10, desolate, desolation and what? Ruin, hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish is in all loins. Like you feel it in your gut. All faces grow pale. For those who do have a comfortable street address in the city of blood, when God comes in justice, they will know desolation and not restoration. Ruin. They will know ruin. So, so great will be the ruin. Their hearts will melt. Their knees will tremble. They will be filled with paralyzing fear and their faces will grow pale god is against the city of blood he comes in the storm clouds of justice he comes to restore to make beautiful all that is broken and to ruin all those who have perpetuated injustice now nehemiah or nahum i'm sorry gives kind of a play-by-play before it happens of what that what that ruining is going to look like he begins in verse 3 he says, so what he's doing now is he's describing the evading, invading army that God will use to judge Nineveh. The shield of his mighty men is red. Kind of could have been their colors. Probably not. Weird uniform colors to go to war, but maybe. 
Could have been describing how bloody they would be. The shields are bloody. His soldiers are clothed in clothing that's become scarlet in blood. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. The cypress spears were uh, incredibly strong and absolutely devastating. So he's describing the strength that's coming. Verse 4, the chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. Remember last week when we were describing Nineveh and how wide their city wall was? Do you remember what they did on their city walls? They had chariot races, but it was their own races and it was entertainment. And there was no way they thought enemy chariots would ever be racing through their streets. So, so Nahum's flipping and he's saying, look, there won't be any more chariot races on the city walls, but your enemy chariots are going to be racing through the streets. And now there's this line, which feels like an insult. He remembers his young officers. Look at them. They stumble everywhere they go. You've heard it said before, like, what's the most dangerous thing in the world? It's a young lieutenant with a map and a compass. Look, look, it's, right, it's biblical. Like, it's way older than you. Like, it's been around a long time boot officers, look at them go. But that's not what he's saying there, and it's not an insult. Um, what he's saying is his justice is going to be so swift and so aggressive. There will be no escaping because the officers who are leading the charge will be coming in so quickly that it will appear as though they are stumbling over each other and over themselves as they invade. That's how swift and aggressive the execution of God's inescapable judgment will be. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. So this is less a mock of young officers and more, if you need another visual, like um, a World War Z image where the ladders are up against the wall and the screaming hordes are unstoppable and climbing over each other they're into the, flowing like water into the city. That's, that's what he's trying to describe, okay? Don't tell my mom I had a World War Z reference in Nahum. <laughs> the river gates are opened. The palace melts away. It's fascinating. If you read the Greek account of the fall of Nineveh, part of the description is the city fell because there was a great flood. Lots of torrential rain. The city was built, uh, surrounded by rivers, big moat. We talked about that last week. And they actually flooded so that as the waters rose, the army had an assist, the invaders had an assist because the walls actually melted away in the floodwaters and made the invaders. Look, this was written before the evasion would have taken place. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Uh, scholars don't really know if mistress, some of you have it footed, footnoted there, could be the queen of the city, could be the city itself, kind of metaphorical, could be the goddess Ishtar, like a symbol of power, that even she was stripped and carried away, and so all the people realize, right? We don't, we don't really know. It's just another statement of how complete this judgment's going to be. Nineveh's like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Yo, that, if you have a comfortable street address in the city of blood, you probably have a swimming pool. That is a powerful image, guys, because the scatterer comes, and as a citizen of the city of blood, you have spent your life gathering to yourself to perpetuate a certain standard of living at the expense of those in the shadows, or if not at the expense, at least in disregard to those who are in the shadows. 
And the walls of that swimming pool is going to burst. And just like the water is going to just going to explode out of your pool and escape through your yard. And there's nothing that you can do to bring that water back. Fam, listen. If you have lived a life of rebellion as a citizen of the city of blood, counter to God's created purpose for you, not pursuing him, but pursuing yourself, not living for the flourishing of other people, but living for your own flourishing, the walls on... Like, like the walls of a pool, the walls of your life will burst and everything that you have gathered will scatter in an instant and you won't get a single drop of it back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or the wealth of all the precious things. When archaeologists finally uncovered Nineveh, it was in the 1800s sometimes, uh, sometimes they ex- there was the expectation, like a little Indiana Jones-esque, like you're going to find a whole bunch of treasure in this city. The invading army had taken everything so that when Nineveh was uncovered, there was not a single piece of treasure anywhere in the city to be found. Gone. In fact, it was just layer of ash after layer of ash. The entire city had been burned to the ground. It's a very unique excavation site. There's a storm coming. If your home is a comfortable street address in a city of blood, God is against. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He's coming with power to restore and to beautify all those who have been broken and are living in the shadows. And he's coming with swift justice to right all of the injustices perpetuated by cities of blood in all of time. So much so... That chapter 2 closes with a few questions, with one question, kind of a series of questions, talking about lions. Like, why is he talking about lions? Well, uh, if you're from the States, like I am, and I recognize we're not all from the States, um, what is, what is our, our, our animal that kind of is the symbol of the U.S.? The bald eagle, right? So the lion is the bald eagle of Assyria. That's what's going on here. They, that, was, that was their image of pride. Strong, a predator, like king of the jungle. Where is the lion's den, Nahum asked. Where to go? Where's the place you fed your young lions? Where's, where are the lion and the lioness? Where'd they go? Where are the cubs with no one to disturb them? Like in the past, the lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey. Look, even that image describes the ethic of a city of blood strangling the life out of others to perpetuate a better life for us, taking the resources that belong to other people for their flourishing in other places and gathering them in for our flourishing, irrespective of the consequences for the people we have plundered, right? Even the language is here. Filled his caves with prey. And you have to know that people in a city of blood are not image bearers of God. They're they're objects to be prayed after because they have resources that can be taken away for another's flourishing, right? We do understand this, right? And his dens with torn flesh. Verse 13, behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I'm going to burn your chariots in smoke. The sword will devour your young lions. Look at, I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers will no longer be heard. And that's why I call this chapter to Assyrian scream. So what you need to do is visualize the city of blood, the storm coming in, the storm of justice, of ruin and restoration. The storm sweeps through the city and symbolically the lions that are left 
thinking they're escaping the judgment, run from the other side of the city, but that they run towards is absolute and eternal darkness as they run into God's judgment. They think they're running away, but they actually run into. And what they're running into, God says, I'm taking all the prey away from you. You will not pray after another person ever again. Done. And I'm taking your voice away. And so chapter 2 closes in darkness and silence as the voice of the oppressor fades into the background and goes silent for eternity. If home for you is a comfortable street address in a city of blood, you have to know that God is against He's coming in a, in a storm cloud of justice to restore and to ruin. And all perpetuators of injustice at any point in history, the enemies of God's people, he says, will be chased into darkness and all of their prey will be taken away. Everything, anything ever used to perpetuate life and their voices themselves, even the screams will fade to black. And that's chapter two. You want to save chapter 3 for next week? Well, there's some good news in chapter 3. So we should probably hit it today. Yeah? Sun's out. Let's, let's make the sun come out here too. All right? We got it. We got time. So chapter 3 is a Syrian dream. If you like taking notes and you just need a few key words, basically here's what we see in chapter 3. Appropriately, with the way chapter 2 ended, we need, a, we need an obituary. So we get one in chapter 3, a little bit, a little, a little obit here. Uh, not only do we need an obituary, we need a bit of an autopsy. Like what was, what, was the, what was the terminal disease? What was the fatal flaw? Like what makes a bloody city a bloody city? Like what are, what are some of the things that we can see, the values or the ethics of a city of blood that we should be aware of? It's here. And then we're also going to see how God promises to expose any injustice of all time. Like... Guys, that BC positive blood type I'm talking about, I'm not just trying to be cute. Like the, the narrative of scripture tells us that we are all born as citizens of a bloody city. And so what that means is I was born with that blood type and so were you. And God's going to expose any injustice, anything we've done that was not done out of love or being loved by our father and that was not done for the flourishing of the good, the good of other people. But even in that, expo in, a, in that exposure, we will see uh, two questions that force us to wrestle and then present us with some gospel hope. So let's, let's, let's hit three, a Syrian dream. Let's start with the obituary, because I know that's where you all want to start on Sunday morning, right? Uh, we talked about it a little bit in the first service. Like growing up, there was this thing called a newspaper, okay? Bear with me. Uh, paper like this, not, not on a screen, uh, had words on it, some pictures, and it would get, come in your, like, Somebody would throw it at your house. Sounds savage, but that's how we grew up in the 80s, right? <laughs> throw it at your house. And you'd have to go outside to get it. You couldn't just like flip right or left. And uh, it had comics. It had the news. It had the sports. And so families would divide up the sections. And somebody in your family always read through the obituaries. There's an obituary here. It's short, but it's the type of obituary you would expect for a city of blood. Verse 1 just says, woe to the city of blood. That's the first line of the obituary. The word woe, we don't use that a lot anymore. 
maybe occasionally, does anybody say, woe is me? So it can be used, we don't, right? It's lament, it's great sorrow, woe is me, but we, we don't really say that anymore. It, it can also be an announcement of judgment. So in this case, it's, it's both, kind of. In other words, what Nahum is saying is, your judgment is so imminent, city of blood, and those of you who have a comfortable street address in the city of blood, that I'm going to go ahead and write your obituary ahead of time and submit it to the editor for inclusion in the newspaper before the event, before your death actually occurs. That's how imminent it is. The storm's coming. Woe to you. That, that's what the word woe means, inescapable. Now here's the obit. Like you're curious what the obituary says. This is in the last verse, 19. Kind of in the middle, not the whole thing. Here it is. All who hear the news about you, clap their hands over you. There's the obit. Feels cold, right? But you know what? Deep down, because you bear the image of God, you want this obituary to be written and printed yesterday for some of the injustices that happen in this world. There are incredibly evil and dark and gross injustices that happen. And you would like for God to drop the obituary and to execute justice because when this obit goes into print, it will signal the end of all injustice for all of time. And it will signal that every broken city on this globe will be transformed into a beautiful city. And all the darkness will be eradicated with light. We want this, O bit. All human trafficking will cease. All abuses will cease. All dehumanizing acts will cease. Last week, we were in Nahum chapter 1, preaching just hours after Buffalo demonstrated that the world is full of cities of blood, where a young man purposefully drove four hours from a county I used to live in. I, I know where this kid lived. He did the research and found the county or the city, the neighborhood in upstate New York that had the greatest population density of African-American persons and for that reason chose that grocery store as his target. And we sat in here and read Nahum 1 together after more than 10 image bearers of God had been gunned down essentially because of the color of their skin. City of blood. We want this obit to be printed now. A couple days later, one of the reporters asked a question on live TV, which is the kind of question you ask when you're in the shadows. And he said, is this really the way that we're supposed to live? Is this really the way that we're created to live? That's what he asked. That's a question from the shadows, fam. Because that's really all you're left to ask when you're in the shadows. There's the obit, the autopsy. Verse 1. City of blood is full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. So kind of two ideas there. There's, there's a facade of something. There's an untruth. There's a lie. And there's a, there's a money piece to it, right? Plunder and prey. There's a resources piece to it. So at the very least in our autopsy of a city of blood, we know two realities in every city of blood is uh, a facade, a lie, and that's why I'm calling this the Assyrian dream. Like in this case, it was the lie, and I'll show you this here in a minute, it was the lie that there was, you can have this certain kind of life here in Nineveh and you can flourish. Um, there was a certain lie to that. The biggest lie was that, that that kind of a life came at great expense to anybody who was in the shadows or outside of the city. And it was insidious. 
all full of lies and plunder, plunder, no end to the prey. No end to the prey because there cannot be end to the prey when your greatest values are financial gain, personal security, and upward mobility. You have to gather in and you have to take away to perpetuate a certain kind of life at expense to other people. So there's no end to the prey. We see that also in verse 16. Look at this, another money piece. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. Guys, that's in the autopsy of a city of blood. And at this point, I'd like to invite you to use your imagination to just imagine a culture like that. But I don't have to invite you to use your imagination, do I? Because you already know that's where you live. Everything is monetized. You don't use your apps. Your apps use you. You don't use your smartphone. Your smartphone uses you. We just go right on down the line. It's all a commodity. People are commodities in the city of blood. Resources to be used. Verse 4, a little more specific. It sounds sexual. It's not sexual. Not necessarily talking about sexual sin. He says, um, verses 2 to 3 kind of re-describe the judgment. Why is the judgment coming? Verse 4, it's coming all because of the countless whorings of the prostitute. The prostitutes got these graceful and deadly charms. They betray nations with her whorings and people with her charms. Basically, Nineveh was offering up to her neighbors, hey, you want power? You want wealth? You want comfortable life like we have? You want the Assyrian dream, the way of life that we have? Be our friend. And Assyria would roll in. Nineveh would roll in. This happened in Israel. And after a couple of years, people in neighboring places would realize, oh, it wasn't really, this is in your national interest. Like, you're not really interested in being my friend. You're interested in the resources that we have here and the people that we have here. So again, not so that you can give, but so that you can gather in and send more people into the shadows as your comfort of living, your standard of living, your Assyrian dream is perpetuated and people in Nineveh have financial security and upward mobility and comfortable life. Got it. Betrayed nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. So if we're doing an autopsy of a city of blood, fam, we got to realize at the very heart, what God's showing us through Nahum is we've got um, a me-centered view of money, finances, economics. We have uh, a consolidation of power for our own good at the expense of other people. And we have a certain standard of living, which is itself a lie because it can only be perpetuated for a season, but the only way to perpetuate it is to drive scores of people into the shadows who exist to perpetuate the standard of living that we enjoy as citizens of a city of blood. And that's why God says it's all going to be exposed. Look at verse 5. He is a reminder, I'm against you. If you've got a comfortable home, if home is a comfortable street address where these are values and people are commodities and you live for your own flourishing and your own fame and your own kingdom and your own power, you don't love me and you don't love people, I'm against you and I'm against those expressions. I'm against that culture, declares the Lord of hosts. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lift up your skirt over your face. I'm going to take your clothes off and I'm going to make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. And I'm going to throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? No one. Where will I seek comforters for you? Nowhere. They're not going to be found. Basically, it sounds sexual. It's not meant to be sexual. What God is saying is... 
the very lies of a city of blood that appear most attractive will be shown to be most appalling. He will show the sexy, seductive standard of living that a wealthy city of life can project and kind of sell to other people is not sexy or seductive at all, but is altogether shameful for the cost that it inflicts on other image bearers of God. Like John, I thought like chapter three got a little better. It does, a little bit. That's kind of where some of the tension stays for Nahum. And I'm, I'm glad, guys, because listen, most of us have grown up in affluent cultures. Not all of us. At the very least, many of us have grown up in cultures where Christianity has a somewhat free and culturally approved expression on the city streets. Insofar as we don't make too much noise and our financial goals more or less are aligned and our entertainment goals and our standard of living goals and we just, we just kind of fit in with the city of blood. And the reality is, as we begin to explore books like Nahum that for most of us we've been oblivious to for most of our lives, we begin to see that the Christianity that we think has shaped us was actually formed more by the culture of the city of blood and less like the Christ who created and redeemed us. And there should be a, re a whole lot of uncomfortable tension, which Nahum kind of gives us. And that's why, really, the rest of the book is two questions to maybe even make us a little more uncomfortable. Because look, if you're like me, a Christian having grown up in a culture where you felt like, you know, basically ambivalent, open to Christianity, then you kind of have this realization in your life, like, wow, even in my Christian expression, I'm really not that much different than the city of blood around me. Like, my financial goals, my work goals, my retirement goals, my inner, all the things. I'm kind of oblivious to the shadows. When the shadows speak, I'm kind of like, shh. It's not systemic. It's just one or two of you. And we're like, but my city's better than the city of blood. Like, okay, there's some, some shadows, like kind of not. You can get out of the shadows if you want to. People choose to live in the shadows. Kids are in the shadows. It's their parents' fault. You can get out of the shadows, work harder, get a different job, move to a different city. You can get out of the shadows. We don't have empathy for the shadows. We defend our city of blood because of its nobilities. Now notice, are there any nobilities commended in here? Now, historically, we could commend Nineveh quite a bit. Quite a few medical advances, military advances, industrial advances, educational advances, technological advances. Pretty sure that's where non-Apple products came from. Evil, bloody city. I'm just messing. They weren't around quite yet. No nobilities commended. Just pointing out the injustices. But fam, why as Christians, when we know we live in cities of blood, why are we so sensitive 
to the injustices pointed around, out around us, and we feel like we have to play the role of defense attorney for the city of blood that we live in rather than having honest conversations about injustices. Are we better? I don't know. That's the question Nahum asks. He asks them, you better? Are you better than Thebes? So what you got to understand is Thebes was the city of blood before Nineveh. Dominant world power, the city of blood. Nineveh crushed Thebes. So they're like, look at us. Nahum's like, you better? You sure about that? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile? Water all around her, rampart of the sea, water her wall. Cush was her strength. Egypt too. Look at all these allies. That without limit. Put and Libyans were her helpers. Undefeatable. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. Her honored men, lots were cast. All her great men were bound in chains. You too are going to be drunken. You too will go into hiding. You too will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your, strong, all your fortresses, all the strengths of your culture are like fig trees that are going to fall off the branch with, with the first little shake and they're going to fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold your troops. Sorry, ladies, just going to apologize for Nahum in advance. Behold your troops, our women in your midst. Basically, he's just trying to say the strength of the young man in the army has been replaced with women who are drafted out of the nursing home. Like he's trying to just draw extremes, right? Strength's gone. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick. Even there, the fire is going to devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. We're not better, guys. We're different. The city of blood we live in is not better. The same BC positive blood that rolled through the streets of Nineveh rolled through the streets of Okinawa City and Kadena and Foster and whatever little town you come from in the States or the Philippines or Japan or Korea Jamaica, wherever we all come from. We don't need to defend the city of blood. We need to speak truthfully about the injustices that flow in the history and in the current streets of our cities. There's one more question that urges us to do a little bit of work and a little bit of soul searching. Look at verse 19. It's the last question. Then I'll, and I'll close with a little gospel hope because I told you the sun would rise. The last question says, upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? The question that Nahum urges residents of the city of blood to ask, the homework he wants them to do, is to make a full account to the best of their knowledge of the people who live in the shadows because of their own city. Guys, Culturally, this has been fascinating to me, disheartening, especially over the last five years. It's like Christians in our own culture in the West, knowingly we live in a city of blood, knowing sin is systemic, have a real aversion to kind of listing and being honest about the injustices that have happened and are happening around us. Where does that impulse come from? And the question Nahum leaves us with is, Fam, I want you to sit down, and I want you to identify. Look, you're a follower of Jesus, and you live in a city of blood. That's where, he's, that's where he sent you. Let's be honest about, let's look for the people in the shadows around us. Identify why they're in the shadows. Be empathetic. 
be listening, and be caring. But let's answer that question. But our tendency in Christianity is kind of to be dismissive, to be in denial, uh, to, to kind of juke away and distract, but not to engage. Nahum calls us to sit down and do the hard work of exploring where in our history and where now are there people living in the shadows because of our bloody city. All right. I know that was a longer sermon. I just want to say one more thing. If your home is a comfortable street address in the city of blood, or if you're a Christian who maybe is just beginning to realize that maybe your Christian expression is more shaped by the culture of a bloody city than than it is uh, Jesus himself, know that you are going to be forgotten and scattered. And anybody in the city of blood who, a politician or person in power who is postured themselves as caring for you or having your best interest in heart. Let me just show you this. Verse 17, your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts, settling on the fences in a day of cold. But when the sun rises, they fly away and no one knows where they went. All your social media influencers, all your podcasters, all your YouTube channel people, all the cultural voices, the pundits, the news, your shepherds are asleep, your politicians are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your rich people have fallen into a slumber. Your people are, now look at this verb, they're what? Scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. There's no easing your hurt. Fam, if you're a citizen of the bloody city, if your home is a comfortable street address there, that will be the final chapter of your life. And BC positive blood is coursing through your veins. But you don't have to be scattered. You can come out of the city streets. And let me show you. Check this contrast out. This is from John. Look at this verse. John eleven fifty two. Jesus would die not only for the nation, not only for his people Israel, but also, what's the verb there? To gather into one the children of God. Fam, there are people scattered in the streets of the bloody city and scattered through the shadows. Jesus is right now in the clouds riding towards the city and towards the shadows, and he is coming to gather in and to rescue and to show mercy to all who will run to him. That's comfort for those who are in the shadows. He's coming, guys. He's coming to heal and restore you. That's good news for those of you who have participated in, benefited from, perpetuated, dismissed, denied injustice. There is mercy. He's coming to scatter you in judgment. But in Jesus, you have an offer of mercy to tell the truth about the injustice and run to the one who ran into the darkness in your place and took your punishment in your place so you could have mercy instead of judgment. He's coming to gather in all those who will take refuge in him. And that is the good news of Nahum. Those in the shadows get comforted, and those guilty in the city streets have an offer of mercy from the judge himself. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, it's messy stuff living in bloody cities. Some of us haven't realized that's where we've lived. Some of us are realizing that our values are actually shaped more by the city than it is you, Christ. For whatever our need is now, whether we need to repent of injustices, whether we need 
healing for the incredible deep wounds that we have suffered because our souls or bodies have been plundered. Father, may everyone in this room find the mercy that they need in Jesus this morning. And for those who are staring down a storm of judgment, may they leave here, leave, may they leave here seeing a sunrise of mercy. And for those living in the hell of the shadows, may they leave here with a glimpse of Jesus, their rescuer and comforter and restorer, coming to their rescue. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.